Welcome, Betfolio Voice family. I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode sponsored by Elanco and featuring Dr. Richard Meadows to discuss vaccination rates in dogs and cats and how to approach the vaccine conversation with an owner who may be hesitant to agree to vaccinating their pet. Okay, so story time real quick. Not too long ago, I had to deal with a true anaphylactic vaccine reaction. It was the second one I've ever seen, and I'll be honest, it was a terrifying and humbling experience. Good news, thanks to the quick action of some excellent vet techs, and I'd like to think I played some role in saving this little guy, he's doing just fine, and aside from terrible skin allergies, which are a work in progress, living a happy, healthy life. I say all that to say, I understand when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. That reaction was really scary. But when I think about it, the number of cases of parvo, of distemper, of lepto, and of course of CIRD that I've treated in my career vastly outnumber the number of vaccine reactions I've encountered. But you're not here to hear my take on vaccines. Let me introduce you to the expert and we'll get into our episode. Dr. Richard Meadows literally grew up in a mixed animal veterinary clinic in the panhandle of Texas. He graduated from veterinary school over 40 years ago. In his career, he's worked in dairy practice, done relief work, and then owned a small animal practice for 10 years. During his practice owning years, he became board certified in canine and feline medicine and surgery. And after selling his practice, he completed a residency in clinical pathology and an NIH-sponsored postdoctoral fellowship in inflammatory pathology in a human medical and dental school. For the last 23 years, he's been the section leader for small animal primary care, dentistry, dermatology, and shelter medicine at the University of Missouri's College of Veterinary Medicine. He's been honored to win 17 teaching awards in the last 23 years. When he's not working, he enjoys his four grandchildren, riding his Honda Goldwing motorcycle, and being outdoors. Let's go ahead and get into our talk. Well, I'm here today talking to Dr. Richard Meadows about vaccines and preventative medicine, something I you know, have very strong feelings about. So Dr. Meadows, I look forward to hearing all of your information, your take on it. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. So happy to have you. And I understand that there is a study that was recently released regarding non-core vaccination rates in dogs and cats across the U.S. Could you tell us more about the study itself and what it means with regard to vaccines and owner adherence when it comes to getting vaccines into their pets? Certainly. It was it was a study, uh, a large number study. We can talk about the numbers here in a moment, but it, a large number study in private practices around the nation, 1,670 practices to be exact, where they looked at non-core vaccination rates, that is lepto, uh, Lyme, Bordetella, uh, and canine influenza, and then on the cat's part, feline leukemia virus, in patients that were already current for the core vaccines. So these are these are good clients. These are core compliant clients, and core was defined as the as the practice defined it, whether that's one year, three year, whatever. And uh, so these are all dogs and cats that were vaccinated for core things already, and and it's a large number study. Like I said, it's nearly three million, two point eight million dogs, and seven hundred eighty eight, seven hundred eighty nine thousand cats. So this is. These are ends that very few veterinary studies have. 
Yeah. Yeah. Looking, like I said, it, you know, how, how are you in the, in the basic gist of it, it can be boiled down to is okay. And the ones that were, that we've already convinced the owners or the owners are convinced that core vaccines are good. What about non-core vaccines? How are they doing on that? And of course, it it varied dramatically across the nation and 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 even inside of similar geographic areas that there were wide variations in these non-core vaccination rates. And so, so what it what it meant is that this isn't about the the facilities, the the veterinary clinics weren't making these decisions based on risk versus benefit, you know, for their particular area. So so if you you know, if you live in a swampy area in southern Louisiana, I'd say lepto's a big concern. Or if it's not a concern to you, it should be. Right? Sure. And and um, you know, so there'd be there'd be clinics in those areas that that vaccinated for lepto and clinics that didn't. When you look at all of the 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 kind of the bottom line results, the nationwide the median clinic vaccination rate for dogs for lepto was seventy point five percent. So if you look at that the other way, thirty percent of those dogs were not vaccinated for leptospirosis, despite the fact that in the 2020 AHA vaccine guidelines, which just came out, just got published, the the expert panel couldn't agree about that. So what they, whether lepto should be core or not there, I think the one with the most knowledge in that expert group basically said that he thought lepto should be core for essentially most of the United States. And he is one impressive guy, um, and he's he's a man of science. He's not he's not selling some product. He's not beholden to some company. He's just he's looking at it. He's a he's a boarded epidemiologist, all right, as well as a boarded internist and and uh, an infectious disease expert. And and so he's saying that nearly all these dogs in America should be vaccinated for lepto, but thirty percent of them are not. Bordetella, it was even a little bit lower. 68.7% were vaccinated. But those are those are the good numbers. When you looked at canine influenza, 4.8% of them were vaccinated in these clinics with core vaccine compliant. In Lyme endemic areas, they didn't they didn't worry about Lyme where I am in Columbia, Missouri, we're not in a Lyme endemic area. We don't vaccinate for Lyme, except that we we do vaccinate for Lyme because we have veterinary students that live in Connecticut in upper Minnesota and Michigan or whatever. And so, so we vaccinate them because they're going home at some point, but, but in Lyme endemic areas, the, the Lyme vaccine rate was, was 51.8%. So 50% of them were not vaccinated basically in Lyme endemic areas. When we look at the cat side of it, a third, basically 34.6% to be precise, but a third of the cats, adult cats were vaccinated for feline leukemia but more importantly, I think the if if memory serves me right, the last three AAFP vaccine guidelines have said that all kittens should get feline leukemia as kittens and boosted a year later. And then after that, you can go by lifestyle, risk versus benefits, what I prefer to lifestyle. But, but yet 36.8% of the kittens were vaccinated, despite the fact that they were vaccinated for rabies and, and FERCP vaccines. So, so we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as, as, Benjamin Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So, so that's what I'm after. 
Yeah. Cause I've, I've done enough. I've done enough of this trying to be the savior doing this fire engine kind of stuff in my career. I've been doing this a little over 40 years. I'm I'd much rather prevent something than to try to, you know, be the savior and cure it. Absolutely. I mean, it's just much less heartbreaking for everybody involved for a number of reasons. And really, you know, that's what we're there to do. That's what our jobs are, is to prevent disease, both for our individual patients, but also on a public health standpoint. And you know, vaccinations are such a such an important way of doing that. It's funny that you say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I find myself saying that in so many aspects of of veterinary medicine in general, and in particular, of course, this is true for vaccinations. This is going to sound like a really basic question, but I'm really interested to hear how you teach students about this and how you explain this to owners. Why is vaccine compliance, vaccine adherence so important for our patients? Well, one of the things that I like to do is I like to quote the the World Health Organization. They're a very conservative group in terms of, I mean, I'm not talking about politically, I'm talking about, you know, they want, they're driven by science, right? And uh, one of the things that they said back in 2019, and it's gotten worse since then, the World Health Organization 2019 declared vaccine hesitancy, one of the top 10 global health risks. And they were talking about human and veterinary medicine. They weren't talking about just human medicine. They were talking about human and veterinary medicine, top 10 global health risk. And they also said something that, that stuck in my head many years ago before this 2019. They said the three public health interventions that have had the greatest impact on global health are clean water, vaccines, and education. And vaccines and education kind of go hand in hand in my mind. Because we, we, you don't have to, I mean, you, you can't live in enough of a bubble to know that there is a lot of vaccine misinformation out there on the veterinary and human side. But the breeder said. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the breeder said that that Parvo vaccine doesn't work against Parvo strain 2C. And that's, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, Let me repeat a third time. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> it's not. Uh. Absolutely. And, you know, I I think of things like lepto, which I, you know, I feel strongly about that one, having seen it a few times in my Mm -hmm. career and going, man, this is something that is fairly preventable for the most part by vaccination. And when it does rear its ugly head, albeit rarely, thank goodness, it's ugly. It is. And and lepto is one that, that I like that I can easily get on my soapbox about because I'm old enough that when I was when I was a young practitioner or growing up in a clinic, lepto vaccine might have lasted for six months. And it was a reactive vaccine. It was a crude wholesale antigen kind of thing. But and and you know, the 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 thought was that it doesn't necessarily prevent the disease. There is excellent wide and deep data out there to say that the vaccine, the lepto vaccine is the cleanest vaccine we have. They've cleaned it up for that very reason, that it does prevent carrying state. It does prevent the disease as well as the carrier state. And, and I can provide anybody with the references that wants it. There's been a couple of studies, both with really big ends, the one with one end of 1.2 million dogs that did not find any increased susceptibility to vaccine reactions in lepto compared to the other vaccines. So you can say that it's a crude, non-protective vaccine that's 
prone prone to cause reactions, but it's just not true. I had somebody say what we were talking about lepto reactivity and another veterinarian said, yeah, the eighties called, they want their vaccine back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a fact. So thinking about these vaccine reactions, I know personally, I've dealt with two very severe anaphylactic reactions in mm-hmm. my career, which considering the thousands of vaccines that I've given, um, and thousands might be a low number, that, and two is two is a pretty small number, but it still sticks with me. You know, it was pretty oh, yeah. traumatizing when it happened. So you know, I'm still a big proponent of vaccinations as part of preventative medicine. I recommend a comprehensive vaccine protocol, but I also understand concerns when people say, you know, what about these vaccine reactions? Because they are scary. So what do you say to practitioners who are hesitant to administer certain vaccines due to fear of reaction? We kind of already addressed it with lepto, but what about some of these other vaccines? And again, I can provide them data on this, good good references and stuff, and and direct them to who I think is the absolute reigning king of vaccine immune reactions, what what they do and how because it's his research interest and 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 but the bottom line is what most dogs and cats react to in a vaccine is some of the things that are hard for the vaccine companies to get out of there are like like fetal bovine serum albumin, which is necessary to stabilize particularly the viral antigens in there, and particularly canine distemper. So that and the gelatin and and a few other proteins that are in there in minute quantities. So one of the things that's been shown pretty nicely is that Dogs less than 10 kilograms are a bit more likely to react, but that reaction rate was just less than one half of 1%. If you're talking about a Great Dane puppy, it's, it's a tenth of that, you know? And so, so if you give them less of the other things by giving combination vaccines or using the low volume vaccines and you, and you give them more antigens in one injection, that's better than splitting them out. So don't give them a separate lepto, give them a distemper parva with lepto in it. Sure. That makes sense that, and it makes sense with these smaller dogs under 10 kilograms that this, these other parts of the vaccines, these inactive ingredients are going to have more of an effect. Right. Right. And, and so I understand vaccine reactions too. I've, I've had I've had one anaphylactic reaction in, in the last 40 years, but it, you know, it, it, uh, for anybody who's seen the, the, the old corny movie, Tommy boy, it's, you know, one of my favorite things It's like, yeah, that'll leave a mark on you. Yeah. Right. And so you, you remember, you don't, you don't forget it, but you know, luckily the, the little guy didn't die and he just put a few years on us and, well, uh, yes. It's, it is a very rare thing. So if you look at it, i one of the things I like to tell people is that you, you really, you may not like me to think about to bring this up, Mrs. Jones, but you are more likely to get in an automobile wreck on the way to and from the clinic than, than your dog is to get in a vaccine wreck from me vaccinating your dog. So if you just want to look at it statistically, that you, you didn't hesitate to drive your car here today. Sure, sure. Powerful statistics. I'm always taken back to something that one of my professors said in vet school and he said, you know, well, his odds are, are either zero or a hundred. Um, but then I had a colleague yell at me and say, yeah, but that's not how epidemiology works. So stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Well, we know, you know, you're talking to Mrs. Jones here about statistics as far as vaccine reactions, which is, you know, it's a powerful illustration. And we know we're not going to get anything done for our patients unless we can talk to that human that came in on the other side of, of the leash or on the other side of the carrier. So what other types of considerations do you keep in mind when it comes to client communication and vaccine protocols? Well, I think the, I think the biggest one, and I like to tell my, my, my students and my teammates about this in, in, as, in, in as much as a way of reminding myself as anything else, that if we could just treat each other with mutual respect, we'd live in a much better world than we do. Sure. Right. Well, when you're when you're looking at that vaccine hesitant owner across the the table from you and, you know, you're you're really you're having to try to search for patients to talk with them because what they just spit out is is not even in the remote range of valid in your mind. Well, you still you have to listen to them. And, and the old saying about you have two ears in one mouth for a reason. You know, if you spend time listening making good eye contact with them, not creepy style eye contact, right? But just good <laughs> eye contact with them and, and, and listen to them. And they can see by your body language and looking in your face and that you are listening to what they have to say. That's a sign of respect. And that will get you a long ways down the road because you didn't just dismiss them. They were already concerned that you, the doctor pro vaccine are going to just tell me I'm nuts and that I'm not very bright and da, 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 da. And if you just treat them with some respect, listen to them. And then after they have finished talking, which most owners really won't talk as long as studies, good, good evidence-based communication studies have shown that the average client will quit talking within a minute and a half. Oh, wow. And those same studies showed that most MDs and veterinarians interrupted the client within 11 seconds. Oh gosh, that's embarrassing. Cause I like, I, can, I feel like I can relate to that. I'm sure I do that. Yeah. yeah. And so when you're, so the first thing you do when you're sitting there and you're just, you're in your mind, you're formulating your answer. Another way of thinking about this is if you do thorough and reflective listening, one key to thinking about that that I like to think of is if you're, and you can talk about this with your significant, you can just think about a conversation you're having with your significant other, perhaps. If they're talking, are you listening? Or are you thinking about what you're going to say as soon as their lips meet? You know, well, if you're, if you're sitting there concentrating on your response before they finished their statement, I'd tell you that you're half listening to them at best, right? So if you listen to Mrs. Jones and you wait for her to stop, unless she just goes on, you know, she starts talking about her last two dogs or whatever. Well, <laughs> and, you know, unless, unless that's happening, then you let her, let her say her piece. And then you ask her permission to provide her with some information from your standpoint, factual information. And, and then you talk with them, not to them, with them very, very different. So if you're, if you're listening to them, you ask permission to tell them why you are wanting to vaccinate that dog for leptospirosis. It's zoonotic. It can rub, ruin their kidneys, ruin their liver, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then, and then you, and then you, like I said, you talk with them, not to them. You can, that, that takes you a long way. It's not rocket science. It's, it's just being respectful. 
I could not agree more. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I would not at all claim to be good at that skill myself, but I do recognize the importance thinking about hosting this podcast channel. It's really nerve wracking. The first time somebody puts a microphone in your face and you're, you know, trying to make sure maybe you can come up with a witty response and, and you're exactly right. What you do is you end up sitting there formulating your response the whole time and missing half of the information. And so, yes, it's something I find myself reminding, reminding myself of on a regular basis, both in conversations like these and then, you know, in discussions with owners, because it is a learned skill and it's, it's a challenging skill. Sure. And, and then once you've done that, you know, she talked, you talked, then you have to be patient too, because some people need time to process. I mean, for instance, in my own family, I, I am notorious for making snap decisions. You and me both. <laughs> my wife is notorious for overanalyzing something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so opposites attract and we make a good pair, but, but it's, but, you know, we're kind of different ends of the spectrum, but if you be patient and I'll tell you, we're in similar scenario that, that has cropped up for me through the years is you diagnose an animal with diabetes and you start talking about insulin shots and injections and you see them glaze over and their first thought is, oh gosh, I hate needles. I can't do that. Then I, I've had many, for instance, cats that we, we stuck them on an appropriate diabetic kind of diet for, for a few days and gave them lots of information, well done kind of uh, educational material to look at. And then we call back and ask her, you know, ask them what questions that has generated for them and whatever. But a lot of them will come around. But at their first blush, they're going, oh, my God, I cannot do that. I guess I'm just going to have to, you know, euthanize him because I can't do that. Well, I think we can figure something else out. But you just have to be patient because they a lot of people just have some have some processing time. Sure, sure. Just kind of planting the seed of this mm-hmm. information. I feel like I do that a lot on the dentistry side of things of, you know, yeah, they're starting to get some tartar. I'm starting to get concerned about it and we don't have to do anything right now. But when you hear me say, hey, we need a dental, like it's not going to come out of left field. Right. Absolutely. So when we're talking to owners about vaccines, one term that has always made my eye twitch a little bit is the is the term lifestyle vaccines. And, and I'm not claiming to have a better word for it. I mean, I think it does capture the description of what we're trying to say, but how do you feel about the term lifestyle vaccines? I try never to let that term cross my lips. Okay, um, that makes me feel a little better. Yeah, I mean, because most of our clients don't know about that term, lifestyle vaccines. And, and um I don't know. Just it just it just smacks of of if nothing else, political non correctness or something. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, it what's your lifestyle? Me- well, you know, right. that's none of your business, Doc. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would totally agree. That's not my business. But but anyway, the um, I, I just like to talk about the the risk of a disease versus the benefit of the vaccine. And, and I've had epidemiologists tell me that, that truly determining risk versus benefit is a challenging thing. And that basically I didn't understand what I needed to understand to, to, to complete that. Well, well, and, and I, and I would 
I'll take their word for it. I, I'm not an epidemiologist, nor do I want to be one. But I do know that, you know, we see, we actually see, and, and the data bears this out, the literature bears this out, small pampered dogs are more likely to present to your clinic with lepto than big dogs are. I mean, it used to be a over 40 pound dog disease. That's not what the more recent data has shown at all. Yeah, there, there are, are, are pampered little pets that are indoor, but they go outside to, to urinate in that same backyard that a raccoon went in at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And what are they going to do? They're going to go out there and smell it, sniff it and lick it. Sure. Or, you know, walk through a puddle and lick their feet. And right. Exposed to lepto in their own enclosed backyard. Mm-hmm. And the owners think there's no, there's no possible way for that, for their dog to get exposed to lepto. Well, and then, and then you couple that with their little dog. And so they, they get, they demonstrate their sickness more because they're, you know, they're pampered little pets maybe, but also Mrs. Jones is more likely to bring her in and talk to you about, you know, a four day stay in ICU than, than that old coon dog that, you know, uh, well, that's, you know, Zill saying goes, do you want a dog or do you want that dog? And and, you know, that I know I'm generalizing, but maybe that that country coon dog, maybe it's easier to replace him than it is to stick him in the ICU and spend four thousand dollars on intensive care treatment. Sure, which will certainly influence the numbers. You're you're somewhat describing my week last week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and, you know, the other thing I think about, too, is from a veterinary standpoint, knowing that there's this this correlation with less than 10 kilograms and more reactivity to vaccines and stuff like that there, these may also be dogs that are less vaccinated either because of the veterinarian going, I'm a little bit scared to give this vaccine or the owner saying, I don't, I don't want to do this. So there may be a, a change there as well. Right. One of the things that in that study that we were talking about that when you look at that, for instance, nearly, uh, you know, a little less than, or a little bit more than 30% of the dogs weren't vaccinated for Bordetella, but, but, but half of them weren't vaccinated for, for, I mean, most of them weren't vaccinated for Lyme. That, that just makes no sense to me because they're both respiratory viruses. And when you talk about canine influenza, the things that I like to talk to owners about, because it's vaccine hesitancy is because in my experience, a lot of people will tell you that, well, I don't like the flu vaccine for me because it makes me sick and I still got the flu. Well, what you, you know, I have to edit out and say, but yeah, you're less likely to die, even if they got the wrong, the wrong strains that year. And I always tell people, I, I know I'm going to die, but I hope it's not the flu that takes me out, you know, <laughs> preventable disease. <laughs> and, but anyway, so, so just what I like to tell owners about is that if you're going to vaccinate for Bordetella, why wouldn't you vaccinate for influenza? Because it's, 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 it's much more severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to even May, 5% of dogs that get influenza, are going to die despite the best of care. And that's not true with Bordetella. And it's obnoxious and the owners may, you know, be out of patience. But and then and then somewhere between 95 and 100 percent of dogs get exposed to influenza are going to get sick. And they get sicker than the average dog with with Bordetella. So and then Mrs. Jones, the thing you need to know is that the vaccine for dogs is too strange and it's stable. The vaccine for humans is multiple strains, different years. They have to guess a year ahead of time. It's a crapshoot whether they get it right or not. On the veterinary side, we know we're going to get it right. 
I have that talk with owners as well. And I say, you know, that's not the same selection pressure that we see in human medicine. And it's surprised how many, surprising how many times I really feel like I see the light come on there where I go, this isn't, this is a totally different situation than the human influenza vaccine. Right. So thinking about cats and the feline leukemia vaccine, you know, certainly soft tissue sarcomas are a concern when we're administering additional vaccines. I tend to, you know, just to say what my practice is, do exactly what you described earlier, vaccinate as kittens, vaccinate at the one-year appointment, and then decide from there, at least recommend that to owners. What are your feelings as far as feline leukemia vaccines, stopping that after a year based on lifestyle? Do you give it every year, every two years? Well, I, I, I personally tend to recommend every two years in adult cats. And, and, you know, again, a lot of them will talk about, well, my cat's indoors, except for, you know, two months ago, he got out and he's gone for 24 hours or, you know, he had his, had his little fling or whatever. And God knows <laughs> what happened there. There used to be an ad in, in a lot of the journals that, that basically showed uh, a, what looked like a, you know, a rough feral tomcat nose to nose across the screen door with an indoor cat. And this woman saying, my cat's indoors. <laughs> yes, but. I say that to people too. I go, okay, you know, do they not go out, but do, do they go nose to nose to a uh -huh. screen? Are they on a uh -huh. catio? Like uh -huh. where is the exposure? And it's surprising how many times there is exposure. And, and you know, and, and very few of our clients have ever seen seen a cat sick with feluke and die of feluke. Oh, and and, so and I have, and I don't like it. No. And and so, you know, so I don't have any trouble at all telling people that my cats are vaccinated for feline leukemia, just as this is the AAFP set, guideline says, as kittens a year later, and then right now from the latest guidelines every two years. And maybe they, maybe they are fairly low risk, but we actually let our cats in and out they the we've got one big fat cat right now that i know veterinarian the fat cat imagine that but 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 two veterinarians actually the fat cat and <laughs> and, and um she goes outside and and most times she stays in our yard but not always sure and you never know that one day yeah and 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 i realize that maybe indoor cats is a better thing but in my mind it's kind of a quality of life type issue she's wanting outdoors well so am i Sure. Let's both go outdoors for a little while. Spend plenty of time indoors. So I think it's a quality of life issue for a lot of these cats. And so they're going to get out and, and they have higher risk. So we can certainly talk about that with the owners. But and a, and a lot of a lot of owners, if they if you have instilled that sense of trust with them, you've had that conversation where where they felt like you value them as a person and you value their pet as a, as a patient and whatever, I still think most of them will let you do what you want to do. And so, and so this, the, there's a good group up in Canada that does communication studies, evidence-based communication studies, Jason Coe is one of them and Cindy Adams and, and various students of theirs, uh, a doctoral students and whatever that, that basically showed a number of years ago talking with, with, in regards to dentistry and surgery, but it, but it pertains that if a, that if a veterinarian made a good, clear, sound recommendation, unambiguous recommendation, not using a bunch of doctor words so that the client understood what they were talking about. They were seven, the, the clients were seven times more likely to do what the veterinarian asked them to do. 
seven times. And, and this is very, you know, this is a pretty, pretty nice in study and, and done well by, by some of the best experts in the world in that area. And, and then also in other studies, they also found that, that owners didn't, owners expected veterinarians to bring up cost and talk about it. And a lot of veterinarians, particularly young veterinarians, in my experience, are kind of afraid to talk about the expense or don't want to, or they, they seem embarrassed by the expense or whatever. And, and so I just, I, I have trained myself through the years to just talk about the expense as it is. And if they say to me, well, that's expensive. Well, I, I usually agree with them. Sure. You know, so yeah, it is. But think about this. If that was, if, if this was a procedure for you, for instance, we would add at least one zero, if not two <laughs> to the bill. And frankly, probably be done by somebody that didn't have as much experience as your vet did either. And so, so I'm not, I don't think we need to back up. I think we are tremendous value and, and what owners tend to focus on in these studies is, is what kind of outcome is going to happen. Veterinarians a lot of times want to tell you about, well, I got this great new ultrasound. Most owners don't care. (laughs) They assume, you know, what you're doing. They assume you have the equipment you need. You got a diploma hanging on the wall and a state license hanging on the wall that they they'll cut you some slack. Assume you know what you're doing. Sometimes we all know that that's that's sketchy, but but, you know, for <laughs> ourselves, going, oh, my God, I don't know. She seems to trust me. I'm not sure I do. But, you know, right. but they're, they're focused on the they're, they're focused on the outcome and, and what's right for their pet. Veterinarians are, are focused more on time and equipment and that kind of stuff. Sure. I actually was having this talk with someone earlier of sometimes we get excited about things and want to tell the owners, whether it's, you know, oh, I learned this new behavior trick and, you know, I have to tell you about it. Or like you said, you know, have this new ultrasound and now I can do all these different things. And you just watch the eyes glaze over and you're like, clearly I'm more excited about this than you are. Right. Well, yeah, and you just and you have to be careful if you're if you're using doctor talk, you know, and tell people got this great new serotonergic um, drug, you know. Well, <laughs> they don't okay. know what you're talking about. Yeah, whatever. Sure, good for good you, one. doc. And then and that comes back to your point about the outcome, you know. And then their question is, okay, sounds great. What does that mean for my pet? Right. What's going to happen? Right. So just to kind of bring it full circle here at the end, in your experience, what do you find to be the main reasons behind vaccine hesitancy for owners and for veterinarians? I I mean, I, in my mind, I'd probably boil it down to misinformation and that's not, I'm not just talking about COVID here. I'm talking about veterinary vaccines too, because there are a lot of, I've got a long talk that I can spend two and a half hours talking about it that I've, that I've built and continued through the years about I call it vaccine myths, half truths, and untruths, and and it's like 300 slides long of me basically de- de- debunking on an evidence base a lot of the long a lot of the wrong information out there. Like lepto vaccines are more reactive, like feline leukemia vaccine equates to cancer. That's just simply not true. Okay, and you know what what causes sarcomas is. And cats from multinational year-long studies and stuff was basically a genetic predisposition. They have some tumor suppressor gene deficiencies, mutations, you know. And a lot of them, if they're in, if they're feline leukemia or, or sarcomas, injection site sarcomas in a particular area, well, there's no saying that most cats breed locally, you know. So they're they're 
is genetically related. And, sure. and uh, but you know, there's just a lot of myths out there and half truths and stuff that, that I've, I've spent years talking to veterinarians and conferences and stuff, trying to dispel as much as that as I can. And not, and it's not just, here's what Richard think it's thinks it's, it's, here's what I have dug into the literature. I have read a few hundred papers. Here's what it says, you know, here's the meta analysis of this, if you will. And so the bottom line is I think vaccines right now on the veterinary side, small animal side are safe and efficacious. I would agree. I would agree. And having treated some of these preventable diseases, it's actually, we had a, a distemper outbreak around here not too long ago when, you know, I don't know the last time I saw a distemper until recently and went, this is, this is why we vaccinate against it. It's terrible. Well, I'm old enough to have seen many distemper cases and I grew sure. up around a vet clinic and, and we had distemper season, just like, you know, you think of parvo season and it's a nasty, nasty disease. And I'm here to tell you, I don't miss it. And why is it that most veterinarians graduate from veterinary school? having never seen a distemper case of because we've been vaccinated since the fifties. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know enough about what's going on with the Parvo cases right now, but I know, you know, there's this new whatever is going on with Parvo, but it seems to, at least from the latest that I've seen, be an un unvaccinated animals. Well, it's unvaccinated and properly vaccinated uh, animals. I mean, a, a lot of the vaccines, if you, you know, I, I like to tell people that despite the fact that I'm, that I'm male and tend not to want to read directions, uh, <laughs> you know, if you, you'd be amazed at what you can find if you read the directions. And, and so for instance, if you take a, a modified live viral vaccine from the time you draw it up until you inject it in that animal, I'm told it should be no more than one hour. Sure. Right. And That's so, what I've heard as so, well, yeah. so if vaccines are mishandled and, you know, that kind of stuff, when you're talking about Parvo, this Parvo 2C, it's been a, a, a recent paper in, in, in the virology literature showing that Parvo strain 2C, three of the common in-house test kits missed 35% of them. Okay. All right. Is that a little, is that what we, and, and I know we're going off topic here. Is that a little bit about what we're seeing Right. With some of these newer cases. That's what happened in that outbreak in Michigan or Minnesota, ah, Michigan, okay. I think it was. That's that's what was happening there. They were testing negative in, in-house, but on histopath and viral cultures and electron microscopy and stuff, they could find the virus. Interesting. Interesting, which makes sense why it was properly vaccinated animals. We weren't seeing it. Yeah. And so one of the one of the things that's kind of a a truism in human and veterinary medicine it has been shown with measles, for instance, in the last number of years, is that, you know, there's this devastating disease. They make a vaccine for it. It makes the disease go away. Then people start worrying more about the side effects of the vaccine than the disease. Quit vaccinating. And now we're having polio outbreaks in the United States. I was just going to say, we're seeing right. that now. Oh, my gosh. That's just that's just that's unconscionable. Right. And so, so, you know, as, as the vaccine, as the, as the disease incidence goes down, then people start worrying about, well, I don't trust the pharmaceutical companies not, and I don't, you know, those vaccines have microchips in them so that they can listen to my conversations or whatever, you know, and just crazy stuff. And then they, and they start worrying about that instead of, instead of being old enough to have experienced a few hundred dogs with distemper and sure. know that you don't want that. Sure. 
Well, Dr. Meadows, this has been a great talk. It sounds like you and I feel very similarly about Mm -hmm. vaccinations for our Mm -hmm. patients. Thank you so much for joining me. Are there any any final thoughts you want to share? No, I enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Me too. Hope to have you back again someday. All right. Take care. Dr. Meadows, thank you so much for joining me and for offering your insight into vaccinating our canine and feline friends. I also want to say thank you to Elenco for making this episode possible. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.